I'm interested in the big questions that Alzheimer's asks of us. What is it going to mean for generation after generation of young kids to grow up with grandparents who they only knew as people who had Alzheimer's or or other forms of dementia? Okay. Hey, everyone. I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Award-winning author Marita Golden says, quote, Sometimes as a writer, you get called, summoned to dive in, to plunge into the terrifying beauty of a completely unknown narrative landscape. That's what happened just before she began work on her fifth and latest novel, The Wide Circumference of Love, in which the real-world impact of Alzheimer's disease on the African-American community is woven into a fictionalized story. Marita Golden has written for Essence, The New York Times, and many other publications. She's also the author of over a dozen works of fiction and nonfiction, including the novel After, which won the 2007 Fiction Award from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. But today, we're going to talk about her new book, The Wide Circumference of Love, what it's about, why she wrote it, and some of the alarming facts she uncovered during her research for the book. Activist, teacher, speaker, and best-selling author, Marita Golden, I am delighted to welcome you to the AgeWise podcast. Well, I'm really glad to be here. Glad that we made the connection. Me too. So you grew up in Washington, D.C. on 14th and Harvard. Could you tell us a little bit about this Columbia Heights neighborhood where you grew up, which you described as, quote, a black world in which a wonderful democracy of conditions prevailed? Well, when I was growing up in that neighborhood, uh, it was not then called Columbia Heights. Mm-hmm. It, was, right. it was just a neighborhood. But it was a, actually, it was largely black, but, but it was still integrated. I mean, there mm-hmm. were black people, there were white people. And what I mean by kind of a democracy of conditions is, for example, on, on the street that I grew up on, there were these wonderful three-story Victorian houses. And my mother and father, we lived in one, and upstairs there were rumors, because in those days people, you know, had rooming houses. Mm-hmm. And so there were middle-class people who worked for the federal government. There were people like my mother and father who rented out their homes, a, a, a good portion of their homes. Mm-hmm. There were people of all economic conditions. And when I was growing up on Friday night, there were some men who lived across the street from us. And on Friday night, they would dress up in drag. And they would sashay out of the building and stroll to 14th Street, which is sort of the major intersection. Right. Now, for us, it was kind of a, a show. And I think for them, it was a show. But the downside of that is that they may have been involved also in prostituting themselves. Uh-huh. I was too young. And in those days, we didn't even know. We didn't talk about people being drag or transvestite or transgender. Right. It was just kind of a show. So there was, so virtually I saw everything on that street from the white elderly white man who lived three, three doors down who had like 100 cats in his house. Oh, my. The, <laughs> the people across the street who would dress up and drag on Friday. And then my parents who were, you know, pretty regular people. My father drove a taxi. 
Mm-hmm. And so the, the most satisfying thing that I've discovered recently is uh, a couple of years ago, a quote, that the, in fact, the quote that you read from my novel, Long Distance Life, was put on a large standing cultural sign. In D.C., we have four quadrants of the city. And in each of the quadrants, you will see in different neighborhoods these large standing sort of billboard-like signs that capture the social history right. of that neighborhood. So when that paragraph was put on a, a large sign like billboard on Harvard Street on that day that it was unveiled, I found out that the great writer of the Harlem Renaissance, Gene Toomer, had also grown up on Harvard Street. Mm-hmm. And he grew up at 1422 Harvard Street. I grew up at 1450. Now, we were separated by 40 or 50 years, uh-huh. <laughs> but it really made me feel so honored. I mean, I think yeah. being honored by my hometown and then to know that another writer who had contributed so much, I'd been running and playing past his house and didn't even know it. Well, so, um, yeah. yeah. Well. So it was, a great, it was a great childhood and a great place to be right now, the city's being gentrified and a lot of the visual history of African-Americans is being erased. So that's another conversation. Right. Your parents encouraged your writing at quite a young age, and you were really writing from a very young age. Can you tell us a bit about your folks? Well, my mother was born in Greensboro, North Carolina, and she was part of the great migration of African-Americans out of the South, Mm -hmm. uh, North. My father was born and raised in this area. And Neither of them had a lot of education. Neither of them graduated from high school. My father was a cab driver who had largely, you know, he he was a voracious reader. And um, he could quote Tolstoy. He could quote Jefferson. He read a lot of books about African-American history. And my mother was a woman who I consider her kind of self-made. She Hmm. came up to Washington and she and my father both played the numbers, which is kind mm-hmm. of an old version of the lottery. Mm-hmm. And um, they they went boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust a uh-huh. lot of times. <laughs> but they, they really uh, believed in the importance of education. And they raised me with a tremendous amount of confidence in myself. And uh, my mother recognized when I was about 12 that, that the writing for me was really, really important. And she told me one day, that I was going to be a writer. Wow. And my father's bedtime stories to me were stories of um, Sojourner Truth, mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass. So I grew up in a household where, on the one hand, my father was kind of giving me these unofficial writing lessons by mm-hmm. telling me stories of great, impactful heroes for bedtime, and my mother was really encouraging me to write. So... I owe a lot to them. Mm. And I heard in an interview that you were working on another novel when you stopped cold to begin working on The Wide Circumference of Love. Tell us what made you stop. Well, I'd written about 100 pages, and I got to the point where I didn't feel that the story was going anywhere, and I wasn't possessed by it. I think Mm. that's really Mm. what I mean. I couldn't see where I was going but a lot of times you don't see where you're going, but you're just possessed by a story, so you'll you'll stay with it long enough to see where you're going. Mm-hmm. So I put it aside, and uh, a couple of weeks later, found myself writing The Wide Circumference of Love, and 
many some of the characters in the other book found their way into the wide circumference of love and mm-hmm. uh i have no connection to alzheimer's disease none whatsoever i'm not a caregiver but many of the novels that i've written have taken me into uncharted territory so in that sense this foray is very similar you wrote that your goal was not to write about alzheimer's but to use alzheimer's disease as a way to explore the way we live our lives how we love create families, survive, and endure. Tell us a little bit about some of the research that you did about the silent storm, as you refer to it, raging in the black community around Alzheimer's. Well, once I knew that this was a story that I was going to write, I said, okay, I don't know why I'm writing this, but I and often there will be a, a, a thing I can point to. I can say, well, okay, I read an article in the paper about an incident. Uh-huh. And as a result of reading that, I'm, I wonder what would happen if blah, blah, blah. But with Alzheimer's, there literally was nothing that I had read. So this was a situation that I was really literally just called. And the deeper I got into this journey, which is now about five or almost six years, the more I realized that, that it was perfect. So I started doing research and I started by reading novels and reading memoirs, uh, memoirs written by people who were caregivers, even some people who were who were uh, writing about the experience of having Alzheimer's. I then connected with uh, a wonderful woman named Rosemary Allender who has a company that works with families who, are, who have a loved one with dementia, and she connects them with services. So she was my primary guide in that she introduced me to the director of a memory care unit. So once I met that person and found that memory care unit, then I had a place to begin my research. Mm -hmm. So I spent time at the memory care unit observing the day-to-day lives of people with Alzheimer's, watching them go through, for example, uh, sitting to hear a lecture or going through a memory stimulation exercise. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time doing that. I interviewed family members of the people who were in the memory care unit, Hmm. and that was really, really helpful. I talked to wives. I talked to husbands whose spouses were there. And that was when I really got a sense of the way in which dementia really trickles down and touches in a really often wrenching way, the whole family. Yeah, how were, so, how receptive then, were folks? I'm just curious, if I may interrupt, how difficult or easy was that? Because it's hard for folks to talk about this. Well, actually, the caregiver, the, the wives and the husbands, I found really grateful hmm, yeah. for the okay. opportunity to yeah. talk. And often when you're doing a book like this, people want you to get it right. Yeah. So they know that if they talking to you, you're researching and your goal is to get it right. So they're talking one to vet and to relieve uh, themselves of some pressure, but they're also talking to help you. Mm -hmm. So I found that in most cases, people were really open to Mm. just being interviewed, to telling, because they don't get often asked, even in a support group where they're sort of sharing that's the closest thing. But even with me, it's more intense because they're just telling it to me. They don't have to compete with anybody else's story. So they were enormously helpful. And uh, then I I just started writing. And 
as I began to write, it became clear that I wanted to tell the story a lot from the perspective of Diane, the wife in the story, who's caregiver. Mm -hmm. Because I found that a lot of times, even when caregivers were writing, they spent a lot of time writing about the person they were caring for. Mm, They didn't write as much about what the disease had done to them. So I wanted to focus on her. So the White Circumference of Love opens on the day that Diane Tate, a family court judge in Washington, D.C., is taking her husband, Gregory, a successful architect, to live in a memory care unit because he's been diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. And so the book, is a lot of it is told from her point of view, but it's also told from his point of view and their grown children's perspective because since this is a disease that really impacts the whole family, I wanted to include multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. One of the themes that came up is asking for help, which is a, a big one for caregivers. Well, you know, it's interesting about asking for help. Since the book came out and I've done numerous speaking engagements and engaged with caregivers, one of the biggest disappointments in a lot of cases with caregivers is that they're not supported by family. In many instances, you have one child, for example, who will, if there are multiple siblings, there'll be one child who's the anchor. Right. And that one child does everything. And the other siblings may be missing in action or may give of time, give of financial support haphazardly and in a way that can't be depended on. And um, I've begun to tell people that I think that they have to expand the definition of who they can get support from. I tell them, you know, ask a friend to support you. I mean, studies have shown, for example, that if a caregiver gets as little as six hours relief a week, that that can make the difference between depression and just feeling overwhelmed. Just mm-hmm. six hours. Mm-hmm. So I, I, what I tell caregivers is that you have friends. We always look to our family, but if our family, for whatever reasons, cannot step up, you always have friends. And I've talked to young people, for example, who've been asked by their friends to help with their grandmother or grandfather who has dementia or something. And in many cases, they've been honored. They said they really found the experience of supporting this elder person and supporting their friend to be something really valuable and important. So I think that what happens is caregivers get so angry with the family that's not supporting them that they cannot see beyond the anger to other types of support. I also think that as we're getting older, I mean, I'm in my 60s, and for example, it was very interesting, I listened to NPR one day, and there's this group called Elder Orphans. Mm-hmm. They have a Facebook you know, group. Yeah, single people who don't have children. And they've basically formed a community to support one another emotionally and materially as they age. And I think even if you have children, that you should engage your friends, one or two friends, okay, I'm not asking you to take care of me, but I give you permission to ask me periodically, how am I doing? Mm -hmm. How's my health? You know, 
in anticipation that one day I may need you to step up. Mm -hmm. Because frankly, we don't live in a society that privileges, it only privileges the individual. And people talk about the me generation. Well, this has always been a, a really individualistic society. So children grow up, they move away, even if they're in your area, they don't necessarily call you every day. I've talked to so many families where the mother and father were in intense health crisis and the kids had no idea. The parents didn't tell them Mm -hmm. and the kids didn't ask. Mm -hmm. And I think that really has to change. Let's go back to this issue of the silent storm raging in the black community. You wrote, if Alzheimer's is a crisis for America, it's an epidemic for black America. Why are African-Americans more likely than whites to develop Alzheimer's? And share some of the risk factors. Well, I mean, I was just absolutely stunned. What happened is that while I was doing my research, I came across a statistic, and I just literally couldn't believe it. I mean, I know the, the long, painful, difficult legacy of enslavement and segregation and the impact that it's had on our community inevitably made our health terrible. And so that we have really poor stats for many chronic diseases. But when I saw that we were twice as I said, oh my goodness. And I just, I just, just felt so bad and so sad. I couldn't believe it. I kept trying to research Google. Right. To find Some mitigating information. Yeah. <laughs> so then I made a note to myself that after I finished the novel, I would do some journalism to really get into that subject because it was so stunning. And then what was even more stunning was I would say this to people at the memory care unit who were directing the memory care unit. They didn't know it. I mentioned this to some doctors. They didn't know it. Hmm. And so I said, if they don't know it, nobody knows it. So that's why I spent another year researching a long cover story for the Washington Post magazine about this. And the answer to your question is several things. One, African Americans have a gene, well, it's the ABCA7 gene. Now, that's a gene that everybody has. But in African Americans, that gene indicates a higher risk for Alzheimer's. So that gene puts us at a 2.0 kind of relationship with Alzheimer's. Then the fact that there is greater high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, Mm percentage-wise, in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Those are all brain killers over time. That, combined with the genetic risk, puts us in a position where we're more likely to develop. We get it twice as much. And it's a real crisis because, in addition to that, African-Americans are only 3% of those in the clinical trials to find a cure. Uh, Latinos are 1.5%, and increasingly, Alzheimer's and dementia are diseases of people of color. Mm -hmm. That means in the white community, through education, through um, better economics, this is being confronted, and and in some parts of the white community, stalled, but it's raging Mm -hmm. unchecked in the African-American and Latino communities. So there's a lot that needs to be done. So then I did the article for the Washington Post, and I've become an activist. I raised some money for uh, Maria Shriver's Women Move Minds effort, mm-hmm. and I work also with Us Against Alzheimer's. 
So this is a real, real serious issue. And the, the thing that's so tragic is that Alzheimer's has the potential to literally break the bank of this country uh, in terms of the medical costs, Mm -hmm. because by 2050, it's estimated that half of everybody who's 80 or more will have some form of dementia. Right. I think that's really lifestyle. We know there's some of a genetic thing going on, but we also know that how you live your life affects your brain. And we are obese. We don't move. The food we eat is addictive. So it's like the perfect Petri dish to create Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a real and, well. <laughs> <laughs> we could go on. I yeah. want to cite some statistics for listeners just to put this in perspective. More than 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's disease or a similar form of dementia, and African Americans are two to three times more likely to develop Alzheimer's than white Americans. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, African-Americans account for only 3 to 5% of clinical Alzheimer's trial participants. Shocking, but then not in some ways. Mm-hmm. So we have a Congress that's debating, you know, should people even have health care? Should we cut Medicaid? And it's going to be a real financial crisis. It's going to change the culture, too. I mean, one of the things, see, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a researcher. Mm-hmm. So I come to this as a, essentially, you know, as a storyteller, because this is a big story with many, many dimensions. And I'm interested in the big questions that Alzheimer's asks of us. I mean, what is it going to mean for generation after generation of young kids to grow up with grandparents who they only knew as people who had Alzheimer's or, mm-hmm. or other forms of dementia. Yeah, yeah. Okay? How do we teach those children to communicate with them, mm-hmm. to respect their humanity, even as they are ill? I mean, there are these big questions that are going to change not just the economics and the health system, but the culture, the culture of families. And are already changing the culture. Where it's just mm-hmm, not being discussed, mm-hmm. but I love how yeah. you smuggle in some of these big issue questions in some of the conversations in your book. And I don't want to give away too much because it's truly a gripping book that I want people to go out and buy. But I, I love the fact that you have these exchanges between the characters where, for instance, the brother of Gregory who is also a physician, says, Mm -hmm. basically doesn't sugarcoat it. And he says, look, there are drugs, but none of them have been shown to work. So don't get your hopes up sort of thing. It's a really honest conversation that, frankly, I didn't get that kind of conversation with the neurologist I took my mother to. One of the things I think the most satisfying thing for me in doing the research was to hear from so many caregivers and family members that caring for their loved one had been a journey of love mm-hmm. and that, yes, there was confusion, there was a sense of being overwhelmed. The person with Alzheimer's was erratic sometimes, strained sometimes, violent sometimes, but that they had discovered new ways of seeing this person that connected them to them in a way that was really profoundly loving. Mm-hmm. And I, I, frankly, I hadn't expected to hear that. I had expected just to hear over and over, this was awful, this was terrible. Uh, but I kept hearing this over and over again. And that's the thing that really buoyed me. And the most important mm-hmm. thing I learned in five years is that people with Alzheimer's are sensitive, aware, present, 
and there's a lot that we do not know about what they are going through. Mm-hmm. And we don't know that it is all suffering for them. We know that they still have a desire to be loved, mm-hmm. to love, to have sex, to have joy, to all those things, they still have that. And so I think that these great opportunities to just accept them as they are and, and be still. Like, for example, what mm-hmm. happened with me was that I was asked to give a uh, reading at the memory care unit where I was spending time. Yeah. The director said, oh, you're a writer, and our residents would love. Now, it was normal. I mean, they had people come in to talk to them. They yeah. had journalists, yeah. artists. Yeah. But I was a little afraid that my, on one hand, I'm being, I'm embedded among them. Uh-huh. And now she <laughs> wants me to read to them, take on another. But also, and I've written a long essay about this, the other thing was fear. When you're around people with Alzheimer's initially, and I was very honest about this, you fear that they're going to say something, do something, or be something that you can't control, or that you're going to say something, be something that you can't control. Yeah. And (laughs) it took me a while in my time at the uh, facility to learn that I had essentially nothing to fear. Right. So she asked me to do a reading, and I said, sure, you know, I'll do this reading. So I was sitting before this group of, uh, and these were people who had been airline pilots right. and bank executives and worked for the government, mm-hmm. and they all now had Alzheimer's. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I said, what I'll do is first I'll just talk about being a writer. So I said, well, you know, I'm a writer, and I grew up in Washington, and the wonderful thing about being a writer is it's taken me all over the world. And I mentioned some of the places where it had taken me. So when I would say Jamaica or London, they would raise their hand. I went. I was there. I had my honeymoon there. Mm. I was there. And, and my memories would fuel their memories. Mm. And wow. then they would talk a little bit about that. And then I got to a point where I was willing to let silence. I didn't feel I had to keep talking. I let there be silence for a while. And then if they wanted to say something, wherever they wanted to steer, we'd go. Mm-hmm. So then I said, well, I brought a book, so I'm going to read something. So I read a passage from the book Long Distance Life that you quoted from earlier. Mm-hmm. And that book was inspired by my mother. So when I read the passage, a woman stood up and she said, I know that woman. Wow. And that is the most beautiful thing wow. that you can hear. Yeah. Now, what she meant was I know her spiritually, metaphorically, right. literally, and she was confirming that I, as a writer, had created a vivid person that she felt so close to that when she left that room, she would take that woman with her. And once I had that experience, I had no more fear that I would do something wrong. That they would do. Uh-huh. I really came to appreciate the real humanity and soulfulness of these people's lives and and what they're going through. Wow. Well, speaking of reading from a novel, would you like to read a passage for the listeners from The Wide Circumference of Love? Well, what I, yeah, what I'm going to read is the opening prologue because this mm-hmm. is something that came very late in the book. Oh, okay. And I had not envisioned opening the book in this way. One of the challenges of the book was to write from the perspective of Gregory, to mm-hmm. in, in give myself permission to imagine that I could write from inside the 
the mind of a person with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And so the, the prologue is a short moment where it's the early morning of the day that his wife is going to take him to the memory care unit, and he's pacing the house, as he often does at night. The words hurl through his lips with a familiar bad taste. His fingers clutch the cool, round object filling his palm. He twists it and pulls, releasing the orb that he no longer understands is a doorknob. He kicks the stubborn thing looming before him, kicks it hard over and over, then turns from its unmoving gaze. He paces in circles and straight lines, frenetic and relentless movement. This feeling, dizzying now, pumps into his blood, unearths a fury of words he cannot marshal, words that are slimy, slippery, burn inside him like a house on fire. The tattered calendar in his mind reads March 2, 1978. That day, a story that he sees in a million little pieces. There is no beginning, middle, or end to that day, there's only what he would say if he remembered. He is late for the meeting. He imagines Mercer cursing in that slow-cured Virginia drawl. Where the hell you at, Slim? If I can get my black ass here on time, then I know you ain't making me wait. Their proposal to design an office building in the U Street corridor, still boarded up on its knees and destroyed in the days after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, is finally being considered. Today, Caldwell and Tate needs a break, a big one. He has to make this meeting. He's practiced what he will say. This is the project. He is ready to go. A pain tightens his temples. To soothe the invasion, he rubs his hands over and over as though washing them and paces the wooden floor and slippered feet. The words now mumble. Fatigue paralyzes each attempt to move, and he slumps on the floor as the words dissolve into a creaky whisper. There is wetness on his cheeks. His mind is the devil. Tears. He no longer knows what they are. So for Gregory, a continuing, because many people with Alzheimer's will fixate on a powerful, pivotal, crucial memory, something that brought them joy, sometimes something that was painful, and sort of relive it over and over. So throughout the book, he's preparing for this crucial meeting with the mayor of Washington. That is the, the first big contract that he and his partner get as architects. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about the transcendent love that adult children and family members caring for someone with Alzheimer's experience. For folks who find it hard to have that experience of transcendent love, how can you encourage them? What can you say to encourage them? Well, I think that the best, the most effective caregivers that I've talked to or people who, before they became caregivers, knew how to engage in self-care, that they took care of themselves, they took care of their bodies, their minds, their souls, so that when the responsibilities of caring for someone else were suddenly, you know, a big part of their lives, they had that muscle sort of developed. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that it's really important, one, to take one day at a time, mm -hmm. and to also we alluded to this earlier, to ask for help. Mm. I think that families and individuals, if they can at all get it, need counseling. Often the stresses and strains 
that family members have about caring for their loved one is less about the care that's required than about the past family issues. Mm-hmm. Mom so was true. mean to me. Dad never supported me. So, you know, you were always the favorite. And I, I, it's been my experience with, with talking to counselors that those issues can be dissolved fairly quickly once they're confronted. And so that the process of knowing that this is a new journey and that seeking counseling, seeking help is perfectly natural. I think people feel that, well, I should be able to do this. I should be able yeah. to get this right. And the confusion is, is perfectly, perfectly normal. So I would tell them that if you are angry, if you are impatient, if you are confused, that's perfectly normal. It's to be expected. But it's not just that you want to get beyond that for the sake of the person you're caring for. You want to get beyond that for yourself because 70% of caregivers die before the person they're caring for. Yeah, I've read that. It's just a and, staggering statistic. And I, what I say to that is that in any other national emergency, that is an attrition rate that would be deemed unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But because it's old people and women caring for those for those most so what? Yeah, you know, exactly. Being, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of ageism and sexism in why this disease is not more prominently talked about. There's one phrase that you, there's so many beautiful phrases in this book. I love the phrase, how does anyone ever know what they're capable of? That seems to be one of the overarching themes of this book, is the human capacity to endure, to love, to somehow push through. How does anyone ever know what they're capable of? Until they're tested, I guess they don't know, eh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the choices that Diane is forced to make as a result of her husband's Alzheimer's would have been inconceivable before. And the things that he does and the changes within him, and we never know what's going to happen. But but what I see so often is the resilience of, of human spirit, and that's not to gloss over the difficulties or to downplay sure. the pain. But people are often stronger than they even give themselves credit for. Many mm-hmm. people who, who rate themselves as not good caregivers are doing much more and much better than they think. They are. So I think support groups are important. I think counseling is important. Asking for help. I think it's important also to see Alzheimer's as a reality, a difficult, painful reality, but as an opportunity. And I think that getting to the point where you can see it as an opportunity for growth, for healing, for acceptance, it's a journey that you go to day to day, but it's a journey that can have a a powerful destination. I have my oldest friend, her mother has dementia, and um, her mother's 92, and she's brilliantly, beautifully modeled for me how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. Now, she's in a very good situation in that her mother worked for the federal government for a long, long time, and so has a very generous pension that Mm -hmm. allows her to get the best care. But even when you have that, the demands on her as her daughter are still enormous. Oh, yeah. And she has to monitor that care. Mm -hmm. She has to advocate for her. But she's managed to do that and have her own life, develop new hobbies, and just say, you know, my mom is my child now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you know, you got a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are your folks still living? No, my mother and father died when I was quite young. My mother died when I was 21 and my father when I was oh. 23. Oh. So I lost them uh, 
quite early. Uh, yeah, that's, but, young. Uh, that's yeah. young. Well, what do you, Marita, what do you want readers to take away from this book? Uh, probably the title. Why the comfort of love. Probably the title. Because it is mostly a love story. And the places that people find love in this book are often very surprising. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now. What's going on in your creative world right now? Well, right now I'm working on a project where I'm working on an anthology that I hope will be a project to raise funds to support the work of Us Against Alzheimer's. Us Against Alzheimer's is a six-year-old organization that is one of the country's most effective advocacy and research organizations around Alzheimer's. And they specifically outreach to African-Americans, Latinos, women, as well as everybody else, because they want to get them engaged in the clinical trials. They want Mm -hmm. to get them engaged in increasing awareness. So I'm collecting short pieces for an anthology called Love in a Silent Storm about Alzheimer's, but collecting pieces that acknowledge the pain, the difficulty, the challenges, but also the humor, Mm -hmm. the resilience. Mm-hmm. that caregivers and family members experience. So for folks who are listening to this that want to submit a story, are you is this an open solicitation process or are you sort of Well, targeting? yeah, I'm asking people to contact me at info@maritagolden.com. At okay. And they can make a submission that will be considered for inclusion. It's really important that the anthology be geographically, racially, ethnically, gender representative. Mm-hmm. So Everything that's submitted will be read. I've gotten some great pieces so far, so they can email me at info at maritagolden.com. Okay, and we'll have a link on my website as well. Well, I I don't want to keep you for much longer, but is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you'd like to discuss, or do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to leave with the listeners? Well, I think that this is a disease that we need much greater awareness about. I'd love to see a national campaign. I turn on the radio and I hear about Lou Gehrig's disease. I hear about a lot of diseases. I very rarely hear much about Alzheimer's. Mm. It's still a disease that has an enormous stigma. I mean, there are many people who don't want people to know that their loved one has this disease. Mm -hmm. So if I would do anything, I would ask people in their ordinary day-to-day lives to start having those conversations. Say the A word. Say the D word so that we can get rid of the stigma attached to Alzheimer's and dementia. We've been talking today with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop presenter Marita Golden about her latest novel, The Wide Circumference of Love. It's a powerful and engaging story of family survival in the midst of Alzheimer's disease. We'll have a link on the HWISE website to Marita's website and, of course, let you know how you can connect with her on social media. So be sure to check that out. Marita Golden, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, it's been a real honor to speak with you. So thanks for being on the show, and thanks for writing this wonderful book. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. 
The HYS podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. <laughs> <laughs>